Welcome to the primary ride home for Friday, June 7th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Biden reverses his position on the Hyde Amendment. Moulton wants to retroactively improve the discharge status for gay veterans. Warren's campaign unionizes. And a DNC rule clarification means bad news for Bullock. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, the story of how Joe Biden changed his mind on the Hyde Amendment. Before we dig in, it's probably worth explaining what that is. Well, back in 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde of Illinois sponsored an amendment to an appropriations bill making it illegal to use federal funds to pay for abortions, except in cases that would save the life of the woman. Years later, it was further amended to also allow for funding in cases of rape and incest. This law mainly affects people who receive health care from the federal government, for instance, women on Medicaid. The Hyde Amendment is fairly popular, though many people do not know it by name. For instance, reading from a New York Times summary by Maggie Astor, quote, Polls tend to show that a slim majority of Americans support it. A Politico poll in 2016 asked likely voters whether they supported or opposed changing federal policy in order to allow Medicaid funds to be used to pay for abortions and 58% said they would oppose that change. In other words, that they supported the Hyde Amendment, though the question did not name it. End quote. Okay, so now on to Biden. He is a Roman Catholic and personally opposes abortion. Having said that, he has written about how he doesn't feel that he can impose that belief on others. On Wednesday, NBC News published a long article on Biden's personal and voting history on abortion. As part of that, they reached out to his campaign for an official comment on the Hyde Amendment. And the campaign confirmed that, as of Wednesday, Biden still supported the Hyde Amendment. And in fact, he has a long voting history to back that up. Now, this is part of the challenge of being a candidate with a really long political history. People can go look at votes that you made in the 70s and ask you about them in a political climate that is, shall we say, very different. Biden's support for the Hyde Amendment left him all alone in this Democratic primary field. And many people, both fellow candidates and reproductive rights activists, have criticized him for his position. In fact, on Wednesday night, Senator Elizabeth Warren was on MSNBC for a town hall with Chris Hayes, and he brought up the issue. Here's a clip. Um, there was an interesting thing that happened today. The, the former Vice President Joe Biden mm-hmm. um, came out and said that he would not support repealing the Hyde Amendment. That is a provision of federal law that bars the federal government from funding abortion services from Medicare, Medicaid, and others. Um, you disagree with that position. Yes, I do. Uh, is Joe Biden wrong? Yes. So- why, why is he wrong? Here's how I look at this. I've, I've lived in America where abortions were illegal. And understand this, women still got abortions. Now, some got lucky on what happened and some got really unlucky on what happened. But the bottom line is they were there. And under the Hyde Amendment, under every one of these efforts to try to chip away or to push back or to get rid of Roe versus Wade, understand this, women of means, will still have access to abortions. Who won't will be poor women, will be working women, will be women who can't afford to take off three days from work, 
will be very young women, will be women who've been raped, will be women who have been molested by someone in their own family. We do not pass laws that take away that freedom from the women who are most vulnerable. Now, that discussion went on for a good bit longer, but that's one key argument against the Hyde Amendment, that it disproportionately affects low-income women. Okay, so the next evening, Biden changed his position publicly. He was speaking at the DNC's African American Leadership Council Summit in Atlanta. At the very beginning of his speech, Biden took five minutes to explain his previous positions and what has changed. I'm going to cut that down to the minimum you need to understand the change, but if you're curious, there is a full YouTube link in the show notes. One other important note is that he read this part of the speech from paper on his podium, but the rest of it came from the teleprompter. NBC reporter Mike Memoli, who was in the room, took that to mean that this was a late addition to Biden's remarks. Anyway, listen in. I support Roe. I support a woman's right to choose under that constitutional guaranteed provision. And quite frankly, I always will. Folks, You know, and I'm going to fight to protect a woman's right to make her own personal decisions when it gets to her health care. I've also, for many years, and let me say this before you start to clap or boo, (laughs) is that for many years as U.S. Senator, I have uh, have supported the Hyde Amendment like many, many others have. Because there was sufficient monies and circumstances where women were able to exercise that right women of color, poor women, women are not able to have access. And it was, it was not under attack as it was then, as it is now. But circumstances have changed. I've been working through the final details of my health care plan, like others in this race, and I've been struggling with the problems that Hyde now presents. It's become clear to me that to get universal coverage and to provide for the full range of health services women need, which I plan to do with the continued expansion of Medicaid and the public option of a, of, a Medicare, of a Medicare plan. In that environment, where providers like Planned Parenthood are under unrelenting attack, where we have a circumstance, and I, I, this is, I want to be clear why I'm taking the position I have. So I make no apologies for my last position, and I make no apologies for what I'm about to say. The fact of the matter is that when, in fact, there is this enormous pressure and even threat to close down clinics that are available in the past for women who do not have the funds but are able to have them paid for privately, as we've been able to do, that was one thing. But we now see so many Republican governors denying health care to millions of the most poorest and most vulnerable Americans by refusing even Medicaid expansion. I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need and the ability to to exercise their constitutionally protected right. If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. For the most part, this change was met with approval. After all, the point here is supposed to be policy, right? In a Washington Post article, Colby Itkowitz rounded up some reactions. Here's one. Quote, It seemed like he heard a lot of feedback and opened his mind to thinking about this in a different way. Elise Hoag, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, said in an interview after Biden announced his new position. 
Hogue declined to discuss any conversations she had with Biden or his campaign, although she suggested that her group and others had mounted an effort to change his mind. We and our members were among a number of stakeholders the campaign heard from yesterday, she said, and we're grateful that they listened. End quote. Not everyone was quite so gracious. Again, reading from that Washington Post article, quote, Washington Governor Jay Inslee issued a tart rebuke without using Biden's name. I opposed the Hyde Amendment in 1993. I oppose it today. I will never back down, he tweeted. End quote. I think this story is a useful reminder of what the primary process is for. This is an extended period of time in which people, both candidates and voters, develop their positions and then compare those positions with the field of candidates. This is a textbook example of a candidate with a long-held belief and a voting pattern to back it up, reversing his position in response to reasonable arguments and discussions with constituents and changing times. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Yesterday, Representative Seth Moulton took on a topic I haven't heard mentioned yet on the trail, even though we're a week into Pride Month, and that is the discharge status of gay veterans. So, here's the thing. The U.S. military had long-standing policies against LGBTQ service members. The gist of it was, if the military found out you were gay or, quote, engaged in homosexual conduct, end quote, then you would be discharged. And that discharge status was either dishonorable or what's called other than honorable. The most recent incarnation of that policy was called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This was a Clinton-era policy from the early 90s, which was seen as kind of a compromise, but still fundamentally left that discrimination in place. It basically said service members had to stay in the closet. If they came out, they got discharged. It also encouraged service members not to ask about someone else's sexual orientation, although that didn't always work out as planned. So Don't Ask, Don't Tell finally ended in 2011 during the Obama administration. So today, at least as a matter of military policy, it is okay to be out and serve in the military. Just to be clear, that only happened eight years ago. It is a super recent change within the U.S. military. But the issue here is that there are tons of discharges that stemmed from service members being LGBTQ and somebody figuring that out. And the problem is not just one of honor. It is also that if you're not honorably discharged, you do not get the same benefits as someone with an honorable discharge. And in this case, that literally means that we have American veterans who served honorably but who are now left out of the system because of who they are. 
This affects an estimated 100,000 former service members who don't get access to the GI Bill and other programs for veterans. So here's where Moulton comes in. As we've mentioned before, he is an Iraq veteran. And on Thursday, he released a policy proposal that said that, if elected, he would go back and retroactively change all of those discharges. Here's a snippet from his appearance on CNN's New Day yesterday. And so tell us about your idea for LGBT service members. So this is something that I'm just releasing this week, uh, which is to say that if you were kicked out of the service because you were gay or or you uh, engaged in homosexual activity, then we're going to write that wrong and we're going to restore your discharge, upgrading it to honorable discharge if you received an other than honorable, dishonorable discharge um, because of just who you are. You know, it takes a lot of courage to fight. I think it takes even more courage to fight while hiding a part of who you are. And that's what so many gay and bisexual veterans had to do for, genera- uh, for generations. Since World War II, there have been about 100,000 American heroes kicked out of the service just for being gay. And the government has never really righted that wrong. We've changed the policy, but we haven't gone back to fix the discharges of those people who were kicked out. They're not getting the benefits they deserve. They're not getting access to the GI Bill. Uh, their legacy for their families, for those who have, dis- who've, who've, who have passed on, uh, is tarred uh, by this government, by this American mistake. So I'm going to fix that if I'm elected president. In his policy paper, Moulton does not discuss the cost of this proposal, but he is talking about using an existing part of the military to do the job. There is already a military record correction and discharge review board, and his suggestion is just to add these cases to its list proactively, rather than the current situation where service members have to request a review one by one by themselves. So in theory, this is cost neutral in the sense that it could happen right now if all the affected people or their families filled out some paperwork. Back on May 9th, I reported on how two Democratic campaigns had unionized. Those were the Sanders and Swalwell campaigns. Well, I neglected to mention that right after that report, Julian Castro's campaign unionized as well, joining the Campaign Workers Guild. So yesterday, Elizabeth Warren's campaign became the fourth in this field to unionize. Her campaign has voted to join the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 2320, which is based in Manchester, New Hampshire. Warren supported the effort and the union backed that up. Stephen Sewell, IBEW Local 2320 business manager, told Politico, quote, they were pretty open to the idea, end quote. Now, I include that quote simply because it was literally the only one that Politico included in their story on the effort. I just thought that was super on brand because honestly, a seven word response from an IBEW guy sounds exactly right to me. You do not need to wax philosophical on this issue. Okay, Warren tweeted her support yesterday as well. She wrote, quote, My campaign has submitted their support to join IBEW 2320. Every worker who wants to join a union, bargain collectively, and make their voice heard should have a chance to do so. The labor movement has long fought for the dignity of working people, and we are proud to be part of it. End quote. Last up today, we are officially down to the wire on qualifications for the June DNC debates. Again, mark your calendars for the 26th and 27th of this month, that's a Wednesday and Thursday night, for those debates. We're going to see 10 candidates each night randomly assigned. 
But news this week from the DNC means yet another change to who might qualify for those debates. On Tuesday, the DNC told Politico that two ABC News slash Washington Post polls would not be counted as part of their polling criteria for the debates. That's because those polls asked an open-ended question about who the respondents supported in the primary, rather than listing a set of candidates and asking them about support that way. Although the DNC had previously said polls from both ABC News and the Washington Post would count, they object to the methodology in those two particular polls. Okay, so what does this mean for the field? Well, it adds up to just one thing. Montana Governor Steve Bullock had 1% support in one of those polls. And losing that poll means he is down to only two qualifying polls based on 538's math from yesterday. You need three to get in. And because so many other candidates qualify via either polling or polling plus donors, Bullock only has one path to get back in the debate. He needs to show another 1% or better poll result by June 12th, which is Wednesday. It could happen, but it's not looking great right now for Bullock. Meanwhile, this also might resolve the tiebreaker problem. As I reported earlier this week, before this change, we had 21 candidates who had already qualified, at least based on our external readings of the rules and what we know from the candidates and math based on polls and so on. The DNC does not actually share their official tracking of any of this until after June 12th, so we are left to try to figure it out on our own. Those 21 people were vying for 20 spots, so it meant that at least one of them would get knocked out. Now, I've had a few listeners ask me which candidates are in danger of missing the debates right now with the intent of donating money to help those candidates reach the stage. Well, the response to that is kind of mixed. As of right this moment, like when I record this, there are four candidates who will not be there. Bullock, Gravel, Messam, and Moulton. The problem is they don't hit the polling threshold, and sending in a $1 donation won't change the polls. And the DNC prefers polls over donations anyway in the case of tiebreakers. So those candidates need polling numbers, not money. Well, actually, okay, they need both. But in terms of qualifying for these debates, it's just about polls for those candidates right now. Having said that, there are currently seven candidates who qualify only via the polling method. So if one of the four I just mentioned pulls off a last-minute polling victory, then tiebreakers do go into effect. That seems somewhat unlikely right now, but it is, of course, possible. And at that point, those seven, plus whoever got the new polling win, would be in the tiebreaker together. Those seven are Bennett, de Blasio, Delaney, Gillibrand, Hickenlooper, Ryan, and Swalwell. Now, those seven are candidates who will be locked in and safe from tiebreakers if they can also meet the fundraising criteria by the 12th. So to be clear, I am not encouraging anybody to donate to any specific candidate, but that is the data right now, in case you're curious. There is a link in the show notes near the bottom to a Google Sheets doc that Politico is keeping updated so you can follow along with all of this math as it happens. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Now, a quick update on the search for Gumbo, the lost dog in Atlanta. He has not been found yet, but people are mobilizing. And the last link in the show notes goes behind the scenes and talks to the Booker staffers who have been with Gumbo since he was just eight weeks old. So, no good news yet, but people are searching. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.